0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VTW prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Listeners, I have a very exciting announcement to share with you. The True Crime Podcast Festival is back for 2022. The festival gives listeners the opportunity to mix and mingle with some of their favorite true crime and now paranormal podcasts. Who knows? You may even find a new one. The festival is being held in Dallas, Texas from August 26th through the 28th. The Good Pods app is a great way to follow the shows and even listen to a curated playlist of their most talked about episodes. Right now, we still have some early bird tickets available, so you can head to truecrimepodcastfestival.com to buy your tickets. I'm going to put the link in the show notes for you, so don't worry. I'll also provide a link to the Good Pods app because it honestly is the best way to listen to podcasts. If you want more of me and more true crime topics in your life, download the Spotify Greenroom app today. Every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, I host a show called True Crime Convos. I talk about pretty much anything related to true crime. If you have a case suggestion, feel free to let me know what it is, and I'll see you on the Spotify Greenroom app. Have you ever been listening to the show and think to yourself, wow, I really wish I could just subscribe to their ad-free content, but there's so many apps involved to do that. Well, Apple Podcasts has made it possible for you to subscribe to the show and get the ad-free content straight through the app. So we've made it available to all of our listeners on Apple Podcasts. So if you're interested in ad-free content, you can subscribe starting today. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Okay, on to the show. Here we are. All right, everyone. So, welcome back to True Crime Convos. I am your host, Lainey. I'm the host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, the host of the It's Haunted What Now podcast, and the Spotify original from ParCast called Crimes of Passion, and also your host here on True Crime Convos on Spotify Live. Spotify Live, formerly known as Spotify Greenroom, now has a really cool feature where you can basically, if you're subscribed to True Crime Fan Club on Spotify, you basically can catch True Crime Convos every Tuesday. So that's awesome. We're allowing people to get into the rooms, letting the notifications go out on Facebook that we are live here too. Last time I did it on YouTube, so I'm going to try Facebook to see um, how we do. As you know, we start every room with our age, sex, location. If you are too young to know (laughs) what that is, why are you here? (laughs) So please leave in the comments your age, sex, location. I am Lainey, 34, female. Cis female, sorry, she, her pronouns, and I am in Texas. If you will leave that in the chat on Spotify Live or in the Facebook group, feel free to do that. And we'll get started here in just a second. Hey, Jace. So Jace is on our Facebook platform. We have so many wonderful people joining us here on Spotify Live. Very, very excited. So we have a lot to talk about But first, I just want to, um, I tweeted out today on the uh, True Crime Fan Club platform that um, another school shooting took place this time in Uvalde, Texas, which is um, about 80 or 90 miles outside of San Antonio, Texas, um, at an elementary school. Uh, It happened this afternoon. So far, from all accounts, there are... 15 or sorry, 14 children that have lost their lives and one teacher who also lost her life or lost their life. I don't know the, um, the gender of them. It doesn't to me really matter because they lost their life. So um, I was very upset by this news today. I'm a new mom. So thinking about my daughter going to school one day and, you know, being at the mercy of somebody who just walks in. Um, if you guys don't know, these pretty small. It's a tight knit community, kind of like a farming community outside of San Antonio. So, um, for some reason, it just really hit me very strongly today. And, um, yeah, it was really upsetting. I mean, I cried a lot <laughs> and I, you know, just got scared, I guess. I think that's probably why I don't cover, um, mass shootings or anything like that on, um, my podcast in particular, because I just get really overwhelmed with the idea of that. So, um, you know, I think it's just a travesty. It's It literally breaks my heart. And unfortunately, I don't think a lot's going to be done unless people show up to, you know, the ballot and uh, make their voices heard that, you know, gun rights, don't necessarily mean that our kids have to die, so I'm thinking about those families today, and I hate it. I hate that they're even having to deal with something like that today, so um yeah, I just wanted to take some time to talk about that and let you know too that like if you are in education or have somebody who is i I can't you know imagine how you're feeling either, so hopefully you reach out to somebody if you're concerned. Um, and, you know, I don't know what else we can do other than just showing up um, at the. Uh, at, you know, elections and making our voices heard that, you know, our kids dying is not worth uh, money, but that's just me. Um, so let's talk about something even more depressing today. Uh, we're going to be discussing the Oklahoma, as they're known, the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Um, recently, there was some traction in the news. Uh, I think the last few months about new DNA evidence, et cetera. So um, I wanted to talk about those today. And then it just so happened we had this uh, school shooting that also occurred. And so it's just all overwhelming, all very sad um, news. So I get it. You know, it, it's kind of what we're here to do when we um, talk about true crime. It's never a fun you know, thing to do. So um Thanks, everyone, for joining on Spotify Live and on the Facebook group. I'm going to be going back and forth, so I may not see your comments and everything. So feel free to jump in, send a speaker request if you are on Spotify Live, or hop in the chat on Facebook. So we're going to talk about the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders that happened um, on June 13th, 1977. There were three young girls who were murdered at the Camp Scott Girl Scout camp that's located near Locust Grove, Oklahoma. Um, it's close-ish to Tulsa. Now, let me just preface this by saying this is not going to be um, an in-depth into the case. There's a lot of information out there. A lot of people who have dedicated you know, podcasts to this crime. This is a very high-level overview. Um, so please don't think that this is a deep dive by any means. As you guys know, we only have an hour, and then we fill that with conversation, etc., when we're on Spotify Live. Now, the three young girls who were murdered that um, in that early morning hours about 2 to 4 a.m. were Michelle Goose, who was nine, Doris Milner, 10, and Lori Farmer. Now, I say 2 to 4 a.m. because that's when police believed or law enforcement believes that the crimes actually occurred uh, between the 2 and 4 a.m. time frame. Now, the girls were moved during the course of the um, murder by the perpetrator or perpetrators, there are some people out there who believe that more than one person committed these crimes. And there are um, individuals out there who believe one person committed this crime. Um, Now the girls were taken out of the tent. Now, when I say the tent, it wasn't like a um, camping tent as you would know it today. They're, these really large square wooden platforms with like a tent over it. So there's really no like security, if you will. Like it's a tent flap, you walk in, you walk out. Um, That's really all it was. They had their um, sleeping bags and their, um, I liken them to what we have now for kids, like in daycare, where they have these really long sleeping bags or, or pillow bags, if you will. That's kind of what they had um, at the time. So the girls were taken out of the tent after they were murdered and put about 150 yards away from the tent on this trail that's leading out to um, the showers. They were kind of on this um, U-shaped way. They were the furthest away from the camp counselor tent. Now. The bodies are discovered at 6 a.m. by camp counselor, Carla Wilhite. Um, She was actually on her way to the showers because she wanted to, you know, get there before the kids woke up and take care of business. And she noticed when she was walking down this trail, she saw sleeping bags on the trail. And so she was like, okay, what's going on? Because the night before the girls had been rowdy, right? You know, you expect that from little girls when they go camping or who are away from home at sleepaway camp. They're just like so excited to be out there. Well, some of them, I hope, you know. If you're in the Girl Scouts, I have a feeling you like adventure like this. I was not a Girl Scout, so I have no idea. Uh, Camping is not my idea of fun unless I'm in an RV or an actual, like, cabin of sorts. Um, So, you know, the night was a little bit rowdy because the girls um were excited they were noisy and of course when lights went out or whenever lights out was called they were just you know excited they didn't want to go to sleep so they did what campers do they hide under their covers turn on their flashlights or start giggling um and of course you know those giggles get out of control and the the camp counselors ended up getting out of their tents and walking around and telling them to be quiet and when they did this, uh, I think it was actually Carla Wilhite who had walked around telling the campers to you know be quiet. They need to go to sleep. She started hearing like this guttural sound coming from the woods, and I don't know if any of you guys have ever been to Oklahoma or if you've been um, camping in kind of a wildernessy area where it's like pitch black outside, so you literally can just see your hand, um, and then. If you turn off your flashlights or any of the lighting around you, it's just like, that's all you see. Um, So when she was walking around telling the campers to be quiet or quiet down, turn off their lights, go to sleep, she started hearing this kind of like growly, guttural noise coming from the woods, if you will. So she does what any normal person would do. And you shine your light over there to be like, what the heck is over there? And then the sound stops. So she was just like, oh, it's probably an animal. I mean, it's not an unfair assumption to make. You wouldn't think, oh, there's probably a killer out in the woods. I would probably think that because it literally terrifies me. To what, The scariest thing to me, let me just diverge for a second. The scariest thing to me when I'm living in a home is opening my curtains and having just pitch black out there. I could never live in the country or any remote area, because I would cry, literally, I would just cry all the time. If I woke up one, you know, I, there's no way I couldn't do it. I don't know if anybody else feels the same, feel free to chime in in the chat if you do. Um, But yeah, that is not my idea of like, oh, great, I have all this privacy. I just think of like nobody's going to find me if somebody decides to randomly come and murder me. So she chalks it up to an animal, which is a safe assumption to make. Um she would still periodically hear these um sounds being made through the night and she didn't really have any, you know, much concern of it because she was just like it's just what you expect to hear when you're out there. Um the girls were in tent eight. So like I said earlier, they were the furthest from the um, counselor's tent. Now the tent seven girls reported that a light had begun to approach their tent. So they started seeing like this kind of beam coming towards them. And it really like infiltrated the entire tent to where they were like, you know, squinty eyes, like what the heck, what is, what's going on? And then when they were finally able to kind of make out who was standing in the like entryway of their tent, they said that it looked like a man or a figure of a man standing in the doorway. But he ended up opening the flap, kind of looking in and then leaving. And they didn't think anything of it. I mean, these are girls who are 10 years old or younger, you know, so I don't know that they had the capacity to really think like, uh we should probably yell that somebody's like, you know, a guy when this is I, I you know, i don't know that they had any male counselors at the girl scout camp. Um my inkling would be no, but you know, again, it's not something that they necessarily knew would be the something that they needed to alert someone about. So they kind of just were like, um okay, see you later. Now, um let me see, and this and this is a little bit important. So, tent seven, most of the tents had four girls in them. Tent eight was the only one that had three girls, and this will make sense when we get down to the aftermath of what's happening. So, once Carla finds the girl's body, she rushes back um, to alert the um, camp directors about what she's found, what happened, and. Then the authorities are called, of course. So police begin to arrive on the scene and start their investigation. And because of the serious nature of what's just happened, the campus completely evacuated. The girls um, have no clue why, but they're woken up. They're bused out on charter buses back to Tulsa, and they just have no clue, right? They just are like a uh, groggy, like, okay, getting on a bus camps over. Um, and there's no news release to, to them, which makes sense that, Hey, you're going back home to your family. Now, this is a literal nightmare for me to consider because it's just an absolute like gut punch as a parent. um, when you get this phone call and this was what 1977. So we're, we have no cell phones. There's no text messaging, no emails where they're like, Hey, by the way, you know, like how we have active shooter notifications that happen on Twitter or um, through text messages that are blasted. We don't have that. Or we didn't have that in 1977. I wasn't even born in 1977. You guys let that sink in for a second. So when I say no cell phones, it's just like, you know, not, in the way that we use them today, I'm sure they had the giant block of phones. I have no idea when the actual cell phone came out. Um, but yeah, I would just think like, as a parent, you're probably like, your landlines ringing and you're expecting like, Oh, okay, great. Uh, sorry, what you're bringing my kid home. What happened? And then, you know, they have to kind of slowly start releasing information to the adults about what happened. Um, and the camp was officially closed down after that day. And it had been in operation for about 50 years before the murders even took place. So it didn't close with the intention that we're never going to open our doors again. It was just kind of like, well, you know, you don't want to return to a scene like that. Um, And you, as a parent, I don't think you would feel safe sending your kid back there, even if they say like, oh, this is a one-off, this is, you know, not something that the public needs to be concerned about this was a isolated event etc i i don't take comfort in things like that i don't know if anybody else is the same way um but those really don't make a difference to me so um there were some reports that started to filter out as you know the investigations going on and they're getting statements from the people at the camp like the count, camp counselors etc and carla or another camp counselor says that there were there there was a letter received um, during a training session that was held at Camp Scott um, because the that during that weekend or during that week that the training was happening um, a camp counselor's cabin had been ransacked and then there was this really disturbing note left um, that was in like a box of donuts and the note said someone. Um, it said we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent 1 and then someone had made like a little figure of a man and they hung it to a tree so those were strange and upsetting things that happened but it also had mentioned something about like martians and stuff so they thought like okay somebody's trying to clearly play a joke that's not funny and we need to just kind of move on from this. So the um, the training ended early and they kind of just chalked it up to a prank. They were like, okay, it's not a very funny prank, but a prank nonetheless. Well, um, I mentioned earlier that the three girls being in tent eight was significant because of this note. Um, again, the note says that it wants to target three girls or wants to kill three girls. And Tent 8 is the only tent that had three girls um, in it that night. So the day after the investigation begins, they actually airlift the wooden platform to a crime lab. And there are reports published in the media because, of course, with any type of um, criminal investigation that's taking place, there are going to be leaks to the media Um, through confidential sources, et cetera. So there's a report that's leaked that a bloody shoe print or an impression of a shoe print is found in the blood um, that's on the uh, platform. Now, the scene itself is described as incredibly bloody, um, so much so that the person, the perpetrators or perp, had attempted to clean up as much of the blood as possible either by using towels and the camping mattress that was in the camp uh, or on the platform. So that just kind of gives you an indication of, I I really don't understand from the perspective of the killer, why you would bother, because I mean, you don't really have a lot of time, but again, you know, these are kind of done uh, in frenzy. So I wouldn't necessarily think they're thinking with the coolest of heads. So back to the comment I made about being solo dolo in the woods is not my thing. Donnie said he lived in the country most of his life. And then when he was living there, it never really crossed his mind. Um, now that he lives in a decent sized village, he always wonders how you ever, how you ever lived in the country without fearing for your life every night. That's what I'm here to do. People create fear out of things you didn't think of. <laughs> um, and then Daniel says our news publications regarding are news publications regarding details such as these are really necessary? No, they're not. Um, we recently saw that too. I don't know if any of you follow um, the Delphi case uh, involving Abby and Libby, but there was a recent um, law, if you will, that happened involving one of the podcasts called Murder Sheet. And I don't really know a ton of it. So I'm not going to like, you know, say too much about them. I also don't want to give too much attention to it because it's, It's really distasteful, et cetera. But um, essentially, Murder Sheet had leaked details about how the girls were found, how their bodies were posed, or, you know, details that were not significant in the investigation of possibly finding the person who took the lives of these two young girls. Um, It was more so seen from the podcasting community as a whole that the Murder Sheet podcast had taken liberties to release this information to kind of get like views, if you will, or listens. I'm not really sure what the, it, it, basically the, the intention behind the releasing of that information was not done with the interest of the victims in mind. Um, so yeah, that's something, you know, they are getting a lot of shit for right now, which deservedly so. I would say um, when you do something like that and it's on the basis of what it seems like you're trying to profit off of these crimes. um, Yeah, it's not a great, not a great look. And I think that they've talked to um, Liberty's sister Kelsey about the leak of information. Um, And I think that they are having active discussions about, you know the things that have happened and the things that were released and really um hoping that ultimately Kelsey, you know, is happy with that discussion at the end of the day. Um but yeah, so I do not recommend acting in that manner in the future. But yeah, so um I would say that the news publications typically especially think about the time frame we're in the 70s, right? So we're on the cusp of this big kind of serial killer boom, right? Um and the person to break the story kind of gets to make a name for themselves. So they're sharing information because this this murder is so out of the norm of what you would expect in your daily life. So, yeah, not necessary whatsoever to the investigation, you know, and helping the investigation, if you will. Um, I think it was more so just done to release the information to the public. Um but yeah, I don't, I don't know that it actually helps. And everybody feel free to chime in on that if you'd like to. So um, the DA at the time, and you'll find that with this case, it, it's very interesting, the relation, the inner um, dynamics of law enforcement during this time. So the DA at the time was a man named Sid Wise, and he's pissed as all get out um, that the reports are starting to come out and that there's leaks about the shoe prints being found. Um, And really with this, when this type of stuff happens, I mean, PD can either confirm or deny or refuse to acknowledge it. Um, And he's just really pissed about it. He's just like, I don't know. You know, he, he basically like slams the media for releasing this information. Um, But again, I would look more so inside and be like, who the hell leaked it? That's who I'd be pissed at. So during the course of the investigation, Petey learns that a nearby ranch um, that's a few miles west of the camp had been burglarized and that it's possible some of the items that were stolen were used in the commission of a murder, specifically a crowbar, flashlight, things like that. Um, Now, there is a guy that they, I don't even feel like naming him because he really was just kind of like a fish catched and released. no, there, there, a man is arrested pretty close to the um, investigation, kind of ramping up, and the reason he's in, he's arrested is because he's living in his car near the camp. Um, but he ends up being kind of ruled out as a suspect and released with no further follow up. So then the Wonder Dogs enter the picture. This is the name of the. Uh, the name coined by the media of uh, the scent tracking dogs or the tracking dogs that are flown in from Pennsylvania, they're really highly skilled dogs trained in tracking. They're worth from ten dollars to $20,000. You'll, I know you're probably wondering like, okay, why do I care how much these dogs are worth? You'll see. So they're able to locate the path the killer or killers must have taken, which is, um, what they consider that they likely pass by one of the camp counselor's tents and they find a pair of eyeglasses in a case which are found to belong to a counselor and a camper. Remember this, okay? Remember the eyeglasses um, because this will come into play in the future as we drill down to a potential suspect. Now, the medical examiner determines that the girls were not raped but there is evidence of fingerprints being found on their bodies and that they had been sexually molested. Um, I don't really need to go into detail about what that means. But yes, uh, there was initial reports. They believed that the girls had been sexually assaulted um, and raped. And so when the medical examiner had finished his autopsy, he was able to confirm um, the details surrounding that and was able to kind of dispel the rumors that were going on in the media. Um, Because again, the media can be salacious even when it comes to the death of children. Um, And we're reporting some pretty salacious things uh, that had happened to the girls. So the medical examiner was essentially able to kind of put that out of focus. So we start to see this break in communication happening between the sheriff's office and the DA and the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations, or the OSBI, um, because the sheriff is this guy who's like, hey, we found the murder weapon. It's a crowbar. And said Weaver, the DA, is like, uh, guy, what are you talking about? No, you didn't. And then, then, you know, they're just going back and forth. So then around June 16th, uh, or the 18th, They have this rumor flying around as the dogs are, you know, kind of making their way and finding more evidence and tracking more sense that there's this medicine man from the Cherokee Nation who placed a curse on the tracking dogs. Now, coincidentally, a tracking dog does die from heat exhaustion or exposure. And then another one just randomly decides to run into oncoming traffic and is killed by a car. So when I tell you these dogs were worth 10 to 20,000, that's kind of what they reported in the media as being um oddly suspicious. So like, you know, before they came here and before this curse happened. I don't know. I don't put a lot of credence on things like that. I also don't see the point in what um what a medicine man, if there was said medicine man, um what the intention would be on cursing the dogs. Um you would think that everybody in the community would be interested in having justice served for the girls. Um, so I don't I don't see the point. I I think it's just kind of another way to vilify <laughs> the um natives that occupy that land. So I I don't know. I'm curious to hear what you guys think about that because I think it's just such a wild rumor. Um and it's also kind of something that people play on on the supernatural piece. Um, that I think trails any type of true crime case, right? So if you believe in the supernatural, you'll often, um, you'll often find that there's things like this, like these kinds of rumors that start, um, with true crime cases. Uh, you'll hear that with, um, Gacy's victims or things like that. Like, oh, you know, don't even get me started on the Zach Fagan's Memorial. If you want to hear more about my experience there and why I think it's such a farce, um, I was recently on the Cross Space podcast, and I talked a lot about um, my experience at the Haunted Museum in Las Vegas when I was there. And let's just say it was disappointing beyond belief. And I love the paranormal. So um, if I walked in a true believer of the paranormal, I walked out a skeptic, specifically on Zach Bagel Bites, um, and his credibility for sure. He'll probably see me watch. I'm going to get a cease and desist. Um, So going back to that, so I really don't understand the point of that. I think it's just kind of a nasty rumor that people started um, to kind of explain natural things that happened. I mean, you don't really know why these things happen. And ultimately, like heat exhaustion, that's up to the trainer or the handler of the dog to manage, not necessarily um, something that a uh, medicine man, if you will, would have cursed them on. So anyways, back to the discourse that's happening interdepartmentally between these you know, law enforcement agencies. Now, <laughs> discredit central is what I call it, starts to occur between June 20th. When the DA comes back, this is DA wise, he comes back and says, guys, just kidding. We actually have several suspects and there's a mountain of evidence in this case, which is a huge reversal from his previous statements because um, he had previously announced like, um, we actually don't have any suspects in this case. The FBI is like, actually, we have three. And Sheriff Weaver is like, no, we just have one guy in mind for this. So th- then he comes back like D.A. is just like completely flips the script and is like, yep, we actually have a lot of suspects. And we have a ton of evidence. And so the governor of Oklahoma is keeping an eye on this investigation. Obviously think of the, um, you know, the nature of the crime, et cetera. And so he's like, yeah, I think it's time to call in the national guards because it's becoming a shit show. Um, Ultimately it's to help move the investigation forward so that they have more boots on the ground, if you will. Um, But, I see it more as a like, okay, somebody's got to get these guys in line. We need help here, uh, you know, just to get things going. So June 22nd, 1977. Again, this is happening rather quickly in terms of the investigation. The crime happened June 13th. We're now to June 22nd. um, And they have, you know, they have more boots on the ground. So they're able to kind of canvas a larger area. And there are two photographs that are found with three women pictured in them. And there are different accounts of where these photographs were found. Some say that they were put near the bodies. I don't necessarily believe that that's true because they conducted their investigation pretty quickly. They started a search of the area pretty quickly. Um, And I don't think that they would miss this for five, you know, plus days if they were posed right next to the body. Um, So I'm more so keen to believe that they were actually found in the cave. And in this cave, there was also some type of writing that was like the killer was here, bye bye losers or bye bye suckers or something like that. Um, something that taunted them. So it made them believe um, that the killer was likely still in the area. And, you know, that's why they continued to have the scent dogs doing what they were doing. So after they find the um, photos, Sidwise is like, okay. Time to stop talking about the media because they're making us out to be silly little idiots who are just fighting amongst ourselves instead of actually finding justice for these girls. And so he, like basically says, OK, media blackout. We're no longer talking to the media. I don't want to hear about any leaks, et cetera." And that kind of works. Um, as you know, those aren't <laughs> media blackouts, gag orders. I mean, there's a way for information to be leaked. So if it's going to be leaked, it will be leaked. There's no stopping it. Um, And that's pretty similar to what happened in this case. Now, forensic experts are coming back after fully evaluating the evidence that they have thus far and are saying, listen, we only have one picture-perfect fingerprint, not three like we initially thought. The rest are smudged and we can't lift them. So... And that's kind of disappointing to hear. I'm sure from the family's perspective, this is also just really frustrating because there isn't a ton of information being relayed to the family. This is really something, I don't know how to describe this. Um, sorry, I have to adjust. <laughs> I don't know how to, to describe this. Um, when this crime has happened to your family and you're kind of on the periphery of everything and you just kind of want answers, you kind of want to know what's going on. From my understanding, there wasn't a ton of information going back to the families about what was happening or what they found. And I get that because in some ways I get that because you don't want to compromise the investigation by releasing too much information because on the off chance that one of the killers could have been related to the victim, you don't want to give them information that they wouldn't otherwise have and compromise, you know, any evidence, etc. It makes sense, you know, that forensic investigators are really combing through the information and combing through the, the evidence that they're able to attain and, you know, clarifying their remarks. Now, <clears throat> water break. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens AG1 because I wanted to improve my gut health and also increase my energy. Now, I absolutely love it because I hate taking a dozen pills and vitamins and supplements. So now I've been on AG1 for about a month and a half now, and I love it. Honestly, it doesn't taste like anything super healthy. It feels like I'm drinking a vanilla shake every morning, which is really great. So you're probably wondering, okay, what is this stuff? Now, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. Now, these help you start your day off right, and this special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, literally all of the things. AG1 is lifestyle-friendly, so whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, You can have this because it doesn't have any of the ingredients that go against any particular diet. And here's the thing. Tons of people take some kind of multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. So AG1 is a small microhabit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. So right now, at this very second, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition it's just one scoop in a cup of water every day it's literally so easy now to make it easy athletic greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin d and five free travel packs with your first purchase all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com/tcfc again that's athleticgreens.com/tcfc to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional There's honestly nothing more important than taking care of yourself because if you're not feeling your best, you can't be your best. Sambucol helps you feel your best with powerful immune support powered by nature's superfruit, black elderberry. Now listen, I'm a new mom, so I don't have time to feel down and out, so I make sure to incorporate my Sambucol in my everyday life. It has been something really, really important to start off my day, I feel like I'm taking control with Sambucol because it helps support my immune system, and I feel like I'm doing my body good by taking Sambucol every day. It has a great taste. I honestly love the gummies the best, so sometimes I feel like starting off my day with a nice warm cup of water, and I'll actually use the Sambucol drink powder in there, and it tastes so good. It's really, really refreshing and makes me feel like it's an easy thing to incorporate into my wellness routine. Best of all, Sambucol is a trusted brand. It's the original Black Elderberry and was developed by a virologist, so I know I'm getting a great quality product. And you can too. Get 15% off your next order of $9.99 or more at SambucolUSA.com. Use Fan15 for 15% off. That's SambucolUSA.com. Use Fan15 for 15% off. S A M B U C O L U S A dot com. Use fan 15 for 15% off. So on June 23rd, officials announced that the photographs that were found, (coughs) apologies, Um, the photographs that they were found, that had been found in that cave were actually developed by a man named Gene Leroy Hart, who was in the Granite Reformatory, which is a medium minimum security prison in Granite, Oklahoma. So they end up launching this full-scale search for this guy over the next few days. Now, Gene Hart is a sexual predator. He is a convicted rapist. Very, very dangerous individual to just be out there. He had actually escaped several times while he was in custody. So um they launched this full scale search for him because he's actually on the lamb when they've realized like he's the one who published these photos um or he's the one who developed the photos, etc. Now um some of the volunteers that are out there start coming and it's Oklahoma. Sorry, yawn. It's Oklahoma. And you can just imagine, like if you imagine Texas with our open carry and we're just walking around slinging guns, imagine Oklahoma, a lot worse. Um, So when they call in volunteers to come and start helping with the ground searches and trying to find Gene, you got people who are just gun happy, high, drunk, um, and they're really like seeking this kind of vigilante justice, which in the end just causes more trouble. Um, it doesn't actually help anything, so the volunteers that had come to kind of do this good thing for the families and good thing to move forward the investigation end up getting arrested for being high or being drunk or being disorderly, and it really takes away from what they were there to do so um yeah, it just is kind of annoying now the the uh State of Oklahoma, or the DA, starts to offer a reward for $14,000. At the time, that was a pretty significant amount um, for anyone to come forward with information. And then um, a day or so after the announcement of the reward, the FBI joins the case because, you know, they're, they're not getting any traction with the sheriff's department. They're not getting any traction with the OSBI. So the FBI steps in to assist. Um Now, on July 1st, that's when law enforcement announces that they're officially leaving the camp, saying that they've collected all the evidence possible, they've combed through it with a fine-tooth comb, and there's nothing else for them to do at the camp. Now, on July 5th, there's a man matching Gene Hart's description, and he's seen in the woods. And so when that report is released, the tracking dogs try and go and find him, but they quickly lose whatever scent they were initially able to pick up. So if this man who was seen in the woods was Gene, he was able to get away. Now, relatively nothing noticeable is going on in the case until July 29th. There's a man who is again spotted in the woods, um, but when they go to look for him, he somehow just like slips out of their fingers and they can't find him. This kind of that kind of whole situation reminds me very much of the Zodiac if you recall that part of the frustration with the Zodiac case is that police potentially had him cornered and because they flubbed up the description he was able to get away. So he'd almost been caught but was able to get away and this is kind of the same thing that happened. So when when they go to look for him they don't find anything but when they come back their posts right they're just kind of taking turns at this post when they come back they see that denise's wet shoes and socks were left in a bag on the camp director's um doorstep if you will and if that doesn't say like taunting the police then i don't know what does and and that to me is really like telling like they were it it kind of lends to the credibility if in my book that there were two perpetrators because how do you how how do you get somebody's attention and then manage to somehow sneak past everybody and go the opposite i mean maybe I don't know you're clicked in the woods um you go the opposite way and leave this you know evidence bag essentially there I don't know it's kind of nuts, very curious to hear what you guys think about that um So far from what you've heard, are are we leaning more towards that there were two perpetrators or that there was only Here we go. Can you still hear me? Okay, we're all good. Great. So yeah, I don't know. It really kind of lends itself. I guess I could still see it kind of both ways. I guess you could be savvy enough if you knew the woods well enough to go back and run and say like, "Oh yeah, hey, I left this bag of evidence." I don't freaking know, but I thought that that was interesting, a little chilling. If I'm being honest with you, you know that you were able to kind of circumvent this, you know, this crowd of people looking for you and leaving um, evidence for the police to find. Um, Now, on September 22nd, this is several months after that happens. Two of the families end up filing a $3 million civil suit against the Magic Empire Girl Scout Council for what they feel was negligence at the camp, that they um, didn't have the appropriate amount of staff, they didn't take the appropriate precautions um, to protect the girls. But again, I don't know how you anticipate something like this, right? Um, So, with these types of civil suits, it's really hard to to make a determination either way. Now, on October 1st, there's a $5,000 reward offered for information on locating Gene Hart, and then a composite sketch is also released with it. And so the sheriff is confident, confident that Hart is still in the area and that he'll be found and arrested very soon. Now, the reason he's confident about this is because Hart is a native to the area. He has supporters. Despite being a very violent sexual predator, um, his, his sentence, um, for the crimes that he was, com- you know, convicted for, which included rape, um, he was sentenced to 300 years in prison. So it baffles my brain. Truly, it baffles my brain that somebody like that has supporters, um, in their corner. Um, who are like, yep, nope, we don't want him found. And, and he had the support of some people in the community, not to say the whole community, obviously. Um, but some people in the community did not want him to be found, but his luck ran out on April 6th, 1978, because the OSBI ends up getting a tip that he is being hidden in a house near Bunch, Oklahoma. Now, the house belonged to a man named Sam Pigeon, and it was about 45 miles away from Camp Scott. He's found hiding there and he's taken into custody without issue. And he's immediately sent to a higher security prison, obviously. He's sent to the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. Um, because there's not a need to like take him to the police station and hold him there in jail. Like he's actually a convicted felon who is actually sentenced for his initial crime. So he needs to go back to prison, which is what they did. Um some people sometimes get confused about that because they're like with this Casey White guy um, who escaped with the prison guard. He's obviously not going to be remanded to a state jail. Um, he's going to go back to his facility or to a higher security facility um, to await whatever trial or charges that come you know, his way. Now, when Hart was arrested, he was wearing women's eyeglasses. Now, do we remember why? This was important to remember. Okay. This is a big red flag for authorities. Okay. Because he had tried on the eyeglasses of the two women he was convicted of raping in 1966 and the, and the eyeglasses that were found discarded at the camp belonged to females. Um, They were female style glasses. I'll say kind of like a cat eye type of thing. That's popular in the seventies, late sixties, whatever. Um, Yeah. Late sixties, early seventies, that kind of cat eye look. He was found wearing, uh, in the pictures that you see of his arrest, um, you'll see that um, he, he was wearing them. And I don't typically like go towards gender new, you know, like specific type of uh, things with like clothing or glasses and stuff like that. Because one of my cousins, He wore really like kind of feminish type of glasses back in the 60s and 70s. So I was like, I mean, now you would kind of look at those and be like, oh, those are kind of more feminine or whatever. So, you know, yes, like Donnie said, like librarian glasses. So just imagine that. Now, something that I thought was really odd with this whole situation of the raid is the after part. So the OSBI officers that conducted the raid, they did this type of FBI style, like narcos photo shoot with Hart and it's just the most cringe thing I've ever seen. Like he's not a moose or a buffalo, you guys. You know? It's it's like those things you see with uh the guys on Narcos or whatever who get Pablo Escobar and take pictures over his like bullet riddled body and it's just like okay. And that's essentially what they do. They all kind of line up and they have Hart in his um shorts and tank top and his librarian glasses and handcuffs and he's just sitting there like, hey you know, it also is very interesting, too, because like in the U.S., we don't really do things like that. But in Mexico, they do. Um, I I always find that piece interesting that especially like when they arrest like drug lords or people involved in organized crime in Mexico, they end up doing like these photo shoots and press conferences with the perpetrator there. And you're just like, wow. In America, like, <laughs> could you Im- I would love to hear Bob's thoughts on those. Um, Bob Mata from Defense Diaries on, you know, parading these, uh these criminals, if you will, um, in front of, you know, a press outcome. Could you imagine if we had like uh, Casey White, the guy who had escaped with the prison guard at a press conference after we arrested him and just like let him answer questions or let him be subject to questions while he's sitting there? Could you imagine? I would like to see that. Like, think about Dennis Rader. The guy loved to talk. He would like eat it up. And as a criminal defense attorney, I could only imagine you would be like, please shut the hell up. It just that would be so insane to me. But they do that in Mexico. It's like not it's it's second nature. It just is what it is. I find that so interesting. Um, And I'm sure they do it in other places. I'm trying to think of where else I've seen that. I want to say maybe in like South Korea, I may have seen it or Japan or something. I don't remember, but like, I thought it was <laughs> insanely interesting. I just couldn't imagine it now. Like with the likes of, you know, like Casey Anthony, for instance, sitting at a friggin' table after she'd been arrested um, on the suspicion of the murder of her daughter, which we all know she did. Um, but yeah. It's just like, you could never imagine anyway. So all that to say that it was just done in poor taste because this is a guy who like murdered a uh, potentially murdered um, three little girls. And you're like, Taking a picture with him like he's a friggin bear you just killed um, so everybody kind of immediately liked Hart for the killings. They pegged him from the kill as the killer and he ends up getting charged with murder, and he goes on trial on march nineteenth nineteen seventy nine and Of course, the families are hoping for justice, you know they want justice to be served um and <laughs> We really don't know the specifics other than what's out there in the media publications um, about the trial, what was said, what was shared. Um, Again, you know, it's the media sharing this information. So it it comes across many different dusts and portrayed many different ways. Um, The court transcript is what we typically like to rely on. But. um, They end up acquitting him on March 30th despite, you know, whatever evidence they, you know, presented. Now, what I find interesting that in the state of Oklahoma, when somebody is acquitted of a crime, they don't keep the court transcript on file. They don't really see the need to. It's like you were acquitted. There's no point in going back because double jeopardy, right? You can't be charged with the same crime. So what do you need the court transcript for at that point? So we really don't have any clue from either side. what was said, what was done. Uh, We do have pictures of Gene Hart hearing the not guilty verdict read in court and him just like collapsing or like crying and being like, oh my God, thank God, it wasn't me. Um, But, you know, for the families, this is obviously very disappointing because he was who everybody liked as the killer. So essentially the case still is cold, right? There's nobody to be held accountable for the murders of these girls. Now, um, Gene doesn't get to escape just because he was acquitted of the murders and, um, at the Camp Scott location. He ends up having to go back to prison to serve the remainder of his 305 years. Um, but of course on June 4th, he ends up dying in prison of a heart attack after he, uh, was lifting weights and doing calisthenics in the yard. He just collapsed and died. Um, now, if people, for those who believe that he is the perpetrator of these uh, murders, then maybe they feel justice was served because he did die in prison. I don't know. Um, but the civil rights, or it's not the civil rights, sorry. Uh, the civil trial against the Magic Empire Council is actually allowed to move forward. Um, but. Again, the jury rules in favor of the council and not the families. And unfortunately, I can understand why, because like I said earlier, how do you plan for something like this? Like, what, what more could have been done um, for the girls? Now, of course, the growling and the guttural sounds that were coming from the woods, again, reasonably, a reasonable person could chalk that up to an animal. The girl seeing the man. That's not on the only responsibility of the children to report, right? Um, would it have changed things? Would it have been more victims? Who knows? Um, the, what was it? What else was there that was kind of interesting? You know, the the location and the way that the girls were positioned in in the sense of the tents and things like that. Like, maybe they could have had more counselors on either side. Maybe that would have made a difference. Who knows? But again, how do you... How do you plan for something like that? You really can't. So I can understand um, why the jury didn't see the counsel as negligent. I don't know how you guys feel about things like that um, when it comes to civil cases, because oftentimes a civil case, even before a murder investigation has concluded can move forward and cause um, depositions in the case to be had. We've seen people, you know, who have been forced to, um, move forward in depositions in a civil trial, eventually have, you know, have what we need to, sorry, excuse me, have what we need to move forward in a murder trial. So, you know, I can kind of see it both ways, but in this case, they're trying to hold an organization accountable for something that I don't think they really could have, could have accounted for, unfortunately. But curious to hear what you guys think. So that ends, and the case essentially remains unsolved. There's not much way in the investigation that's happening. Um but the good thing is and the good news is is that they did collect biological evidence which included semen found on a pillowcase. Now, in 1989, they did a um some type of like DNA testing. And obviously again, it's 1989, so it wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. Um, and they really couldn't rule out Hart as a person who left the sample. Um, in 2008, I believe they tried again, but the sample had been so degraded by that time that again they couldn't um, they couldn't really confirm or deny or rule him out as the as the murderer in this case. Um, I mean, and that can go both ways, right? The fact that I can't rule you out could lend itself to mean that you are the person who committed the crimes. I'm more so on the camp that, um, no, PCR didn't work because the sample was too degraded. So they weren't able to really find anything. Same with the, um, fingerprint. They thought that the fingerprint was clear and great, but it actually was also smudged in a way that they couldn't, um, confirm. So there's this new Hulu docuseries. You guys have probably seen it, um, or the advertisement for it. It's called The Keeper of Ashes. And Kristen Chenoweth, I guess, is the host of this, or she will be the person who ends up recalling how she was supposed to be at camp that day and the girls um, were a part of her friend group that she had ended up uh, being sick and that's why she couldn't have gone. But again, um, I don't know that that necessarily means that she would have been a victim because if if the person was really focused on getting three people, um, Kristen being there would have filled the fourth you know, or somebody would have filled the fourth tent or the eighth tent with the four girl. Um, So who knows? I don't know. Um, But I will be interested to see. I don't know if it's out yet or not. I didn't check. But um, I think it's interesting because she kind of does have um, ties. She does have ties to the area. She was friends with three of the girls, I believe, or with all three of the girls and knew them. Um, So I'm sure that it was very uh, jarring as a kid to find out what happened, you know, and very scared. I would never in my life go camping again. Um, if that was the case, and I would be terrified, like it just, that's kind of how I respond. Now, uh, KO, it's called Coco, but it's C O K O C O News 5 did a really great job of illustrating the girls and their personalities and how excited they were to go to camp and the things that they did to be able to Get there now, Lori Farmer. Um, they said that she was a bright little girl who was to be, who was like very mature um, beyond her years, and she was the youngest Girl Scout at the camp that week. Um, she was excited to write home to her family in Tulsa, and she had told her loved ones about her two new friends and roommates. And her father, Dr. Charles Farmer, had been an emergency room director at Tulsa St. John's Medical Center. Um. Michelle was also a returning camper. She had been there um, several times or the year before. Um, And so she was like super excited. She was athletic. She had a love for plants. She had a green thumb. Um, Her mom said that before she left, she was telling her like, please take care of my plants while I'm away. And she said that African violets um, were her daughter's favorites. Now, Um, Denise's story is a little bit, um, you know, it makes me really sad because she had sold enough Girl Scout cookies to go to camp with her friends. And she was just like excited to be able to go with her friends. She was a straight student. She had been admitted into the Tulsa school, um, for, um, students who were considered to be exceptionally bright. Um And her friends ended up backing out at the last minute. And Denise was like really bummed about it. She didn't want to go, but she was just like, you know what? Fine. I'll just go by myself. Um She just wasn't happy about the idea of leaving her mom and her sister. She even cried on the bus about having to leave them behind. Um, And I think the night of the murder, she had gotten really upset and she wanted to call her mom because she missed her. And the camp counselor was like, just call your mom in the morning, like focus on having a good night. And she just wanted to call her mom, say that she missed her and that she loved her. And i just like, that really breaks my heart for this kid. Um, and for the family to know that too, you know, that they could have had an opportunity to tell each other they loved each other one last time. Um, and they didn't because of course, you never know these things are going to happen. Now, um, after Michelle's death, her dad, Richard, established something called the victim's bill of rights in Oklahoma and the Oklahoma victims compensation board. Um, and when I mentioned earlier that the family had felt like they hadn't or families had felt that they hadn't had a lot of communication from law enforcement. This stems from Richard. Um, he felt that his family was ignored by law enforcement and the prosecutor. So he really developed this bill to make sure that families and victims, um, were involved in every step of the legal process and that the compensation board was there to help provide victims and their family members with money to assess assist with expenses like medical bills. Um, because even if it had just ended in an attack and not necessarily a murder, there's trauma, you know, so many things that are like wrapped up in that, um, that require therapy, et cetera. So I really applaud Richard for for taking his daughter's death and trying to find something good out of it, something that it wasn't in vain for. Um and I hope that if I ever have to I hope to God I'd ever have to, but if I do, I hope to have that type of enthusiasm and that kind of awareness that, you know, I need to do something more to help protect others. Kind of like uh Mark Class did with Polly's death, you know, and st- um, establishing the Class Kids Foundation, things like that. Now, Lori Farmer's mom, Sherry Farmer, she ended up a, find, uh, being a founder of the Oklahoma chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, which is an organization that's dedicated to providing assistance and support to families of homicide victims. Um, now, there was a recent report that came out over the last two months that the it's still spotty to me, so it doesn't really kind of confirm anything, but They say that the DNA kind of alludes to Gene Hart being the sole perpetrator and the person who likely murdered the uh, girls. So that's kind of what's out there. Some people and some law enforcement agencies still consider this case to be unsolved. Um, And there are other agencies that because of this uh, announcement about the DNA evidence, that um or the retesting of the evidence that likely leads to Hart being the person who did this um consider the case to be closed but you know it's kind of still up in the air for me I, I don't know one way or the other so i'm very curious to hear what you guys think about that um as usual we are at our time look at me you guys um excuse me oh my gosh if you guys have anything you'd like to add feel free to um, i will say that next week going to have my friend eric carter landine on who is a uh true crime podcaster as well he hosts the true consequences podcast if you recall and if you are an avid true crime convo attendee um you know that he joined me to discuss the dylan redwine case because he did a great um investigative deep dive into the case and kind of the nuanced things surrounding that case and dylan's murder He's going to be on next week to talk about his um, fight for justice. He's attempting to get justice for his baby brother, Jacob, who was murdered by his mother's um, boyfriend, his stepfather, I believe. Um, And hopefully there's some traction with the case where it's now um, likely going to be prosecuted. Um, But yeah, it, his fight's not over and he is a very big proponent of ethical true crime and can explain what that means when he joins us. So I hope that you um, plan to join us next week. Anyways, we are at our time, my friends. Thank you as always for joining me for another true crime conversations. You are all wonderful. I love seeing your faces pop up on the stream. Um, of course, if you have any cases you'd like to recommend, feel free to click on my profile picture. You can also follow me on Twitter where I um, tweet things and you can also make some case suggestions. But yes, next week, we're going to have um, Eric Carter Landine on and I adore him. I think he's wonderful. And I think you guys will too. And I think you'll be moved by um, what he's going to share with you and Jacob's story. And um, I think you'll end up loving him as much as I do. And then I hope to have my friend, Bob Mata, who is the host of the Defense Diaries. His father was John Wayne Gacy's defense attorney, and we have a kind of conversation going on right now where we're discussing the importance of do we care if John Wayne Gacy's rights were violated with planted evidence if the end result was that he ultimately was convicted um, and found to be a serial killer. So I think it's a great conversation to have. Bob um, is a proponent of the Constitution, so he definitely cares. But I think it's kind of an interesting and more nuanced conversation to have. And I think it would be great to have here on Spotify Live. But I've taken up enough of your time, my friends. So thank you again for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope everybody has a great rest of the night. I will talk to you next week. Remember, we have the Memorial Day holiday. If you have to work, I am so sorry. Um, But I will be thinking of you as I try to not get another illness from my child. Um again, thank you guys for joining me. I hope that you guys have a great rest of the week and I will talk to you next week. Bye friends. Okay fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams, who also has an amazing podcast out called Connections that I have the honor of voicing a role for. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or follow him at We Talk of Dreams on Twitter or go to his website, wetalkofdreams.com.